The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey, everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. Uh, this is your host, John Zink, and uh, this is episode number 33, and I'm joined today by my esteemed guest, Mr. Chuck Podesta. Uh, he is the CIO of uh, Renown Health here in Reno, Nevada, and you were born in Pennsylvania. What is the name of that city? <laughs> Thanks, John. That's uh, Monongahela. Monongahela. It, it's, it's, actually a, like, uh, it's actually a Native American word, Indian word. Yeah, it. I, I forget what it means. Something like um, you stay on your side of the river, and I'll stay on mine. So, I bet you. That, I bet you they were saying that back in the day. Yeah, and that was a, that was actually the name of the river. It connects to the uh, Ohio and Allegheny in Pittsburgh. But I was about twenty four miles from Pittsburgh. Actually, my my claim to fame in Monongahela is I'm the I'm the same age as Joe Montana. We went, we were in first grade together there. He was born in, in, uh, so I went to school with him uh, from first grade to fourth grade uh, before I moved uh, away. So I, so I have one of those, you know, the old pictures of when you're in first grade, the little pictures where you're little squares with all your classmates, you know, I'm down on the bottom right and Joe is up on the top. So I still have that. Um, well, all the, all the, all the California folks are going to love uh, hearing that. Yeah, well, I, I remember he, you know, people asked me, well, you know, was he good back then? Well, we were just kids, but he was always like the fastest runner. We played kickball. He could kick the ball further than anybody else. It was just, it was, you know, it wasn't, it's not a surprise of who he turned into just based on what he was like when he was a kid. He was very athletic. It's interesting because I know you're an athlete as well, but uh, I, I've played golf with a lot of these uh, professional athletes <clears throat> and, uh, you know, football players, basketball players, and to see natural athletic ability when they swing a golf club yeah, you know, for someone who's not a professional golfer to watch them do things, it's just, it's a different level of athlete, different level of human being <laughs> because they're, yes. they just, they're good at whatever they do. Right. And he was Joe was the same way. I think he played baseball, basketball, football, and he played a lot of different sports. So same. So now you live in Reno and uh, yes. you've got three kids. Uh, yes. what, what do you got? Boys, girls? Two, uh, two boys and a girl. Uh, the, oldest, the oldest boy is married with uh, two kids. So I have uh, two grandkids from him and his wife and then uh, my youngest daughter, uh, is married as well, and she has one daughter with an, another one on the way. So she's got a bun in the oven. Bun in the oven. Another girl. So it's the girls taking over. It's going to end up being three girls and one boy uh, by August. Uh, so super excited though. And then I have my middle son, who's like my world traveler. He's my. Uh, he's different. He's he's not married. Uh, he's more like my best friend uh, than my son. He's actually out here now. Uh, with me, he came out in December. He's worked in Nicaragua, Guatemala, worked on a coffee farm in Peru. Um, he's just a really interesting guy, and he's a big snowboarder. 
Um, he came out for the winter and he's gone, I think since December, he's gone 60 times uh, oh. with his pass. So he has been following the snow. He's actually helping me build a house. I bought 40 acres of land up near Pyramid Lake on the Paha Range, Paha Range. And uh, so we're designing a home right now and he's big into that and landscaping and things like that. So he's been a super help uh, being here with me right now. So really That's cool. That's awesome. I know when you and I first met, um, you know, full transparency, Renown is uh, one of our clients um, or IT, uh, IT Avalon. And uh, you were talking about him coming and you were very excited about him coming into town. So uh, it's great to hear that uh, things are going well there and he's having a good time here in Reno. Yeah. And everybody else is back east in, in the Boston area. Um, but I go back every six weeks or so to see the see the grandkids and make sure they, they remember Pop Pop. You know, <laughs> Pop Pop is. <laughs> so just a quick uh, background. Uh, uh, Chuck is uh, healthcare CIO for the last 26 years. Mm-hmm in uh, healthcare for over 40 years, uh, all types of different healthcare uh, and sizes of organizations. Uh, but the last 14 years has been in uh, academic medical centers. Yeah. Avid marathon runner uh, who has run 12 in total, correct? Am I right on that? Yeah, in the last uh, eight years or so. Including five Boston marathons and He's one of only about 7,000 people in the world to have run all the major marathons. Yeah, there's uh, six world majors that uh, Abbott sponsors, Boston, New York, Chicago, London, Berlin, and Tokyo. And uh, very hard to get into those. You, you have, to have to qualify or you have to do a charity uh, run, something along those lines. But it takes a while to do. And only uh, we have our own Facebook uh, page. We have our own password to a site where we can buy swag and stuff like that with the uh, six star world marathon, you know, logo on it and things like that. It's very much coveted by mostly amateur marathoners. The elite runners, they don't need to do the six. They do 35 Bostons and stuff like that, you know. So, uh, but for us amateurs, it's it's a big deal. So how did you get into running and uh, running marathons? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I was, I turned uh, uh, early fifth, probably 53, 54, and I was living in Burlington, Vermont, and I, I was living on the route of the Burlington Marathon in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, I was about the 13-mile mark and lived in a condo there, and I used to sit outside and watch them come by, and of course, I had a beer in my hand, and, and uh, <laughs> I was 45 pounds heavier than I am today. And at one point I just, you know, I started thinking about my kids were dating. They were getting out of college, starting to graduate. I was like, you know, they're going to have kids and uh, you know, do I want to be around there, you know, around to, to see the kids and watch them grow up grandkids or, or, you know, am I going to be pop pop sitting in a chair uh, having them go get me a beer, you know, that type of pop up. No, I want to, you know, play ball with them and, and do things, be active with them. So kind of switched my whole thinking. And I said, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to figure this out. So I started with a half marathon first. I started training and it was a relay uh, where uh, I, I got a buddy of mine to run the first half. And then I ran the second half and did that for two years in a row. And in the third year, we we're going to do it again, but he hurt his knee. Uh, gosh, it was probably February. And this was, the race is on Memorial Day weekend. 
And I had a choice either. I couldn't find another partner. So it's either drop out um, or run the whole thing. Run the whole damn thing. Yeah. And I had enough time. So I, I went online. It was kind of funny. I went online and I, I was like, how do I look up a training program? So I just typed in rookie marathon and it came up rookiemarathon.com and it had a, had a 16 week program. And I just put it on the refrigerator and every day and night before I went to bed, I just looked at it to see what I was supposed to do the next day. And I just did it. You know, if it said run five miles, I ran five miles. It said, you know, cross training, I did cross training, you know, the mix of whatever it was it said on there. And sure enough, you know, within, you know, four months or so, um, you know, I, I ran it. And that was in 2013. Uh, and that was, if you remember, that was the Boston bombing year. And so, you know, I was running with a lot of club members and they had run the marathon. So they came back with pretty horrific stories. So I thought it was just one and done. And I was like, you know, I got to, I got to run the Boston marathon. So I got into that, but Burlington, by the way, was a qualifier. So that worked out nicely. Uh, so I ended up, um, going to that and that was amazing because of all the, uh, it was kind of the comeback of the Boston marathon. We were actually treated like celebrities. People were like, thank you for not being afraid and coming back. And, uh, and of course, uh, I mean, it's the safest place on earth, right? With all the mil we had military there, uh, national guard, the whole thing. It was a military drone flying over my head when I was running. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Uh, but what an experience. And then I, I figured, okay, that's good. And then somebody told me, uh, Hey, do you ever hear about the six, uh, six world majors? I'm like, uh, what's that? Don't tell me because I know it's going to be, <laughs> don't, don't even get a me started. Thing. So they told me about it. And I was like, Oh damn, now I got to do that. And so that was kind of the progression. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I think, uh, one of my favorite, uh, lines is, uh, you know, if, if you're not growing, you're dying. So it's yeah. like, uh, you know, if, yeah. you, if you're going to do something, do it all the way. And in, in our business here, you know, one of my favorite uh, motivational speakers or authors is a guy named Grant Cardone. And uh, for people in this business and other sales businesses, he goes, if you're not going to make the thousandth call, don't make the first call. Right. You know, it's like, if, just go for it. You know, go out I, and do it. If you're going to do something, do it all the way. So that's so cool, man. I, yeah. I, you know, the interesting thing is the first time in my life, you know, I was 55 years old when I ran my first marathon. And uh, it was the first time in my life I was really out of my comfort zone. Like, can I actually do this? Because, you know, when you train for a marathon, you don't run 26 miles. The first time you run the 26 two is when you run the actual race. And that was, you know, and you're just wondering whether you can actually do it or not. When I was so, what, what is what is the most in, when you're in training? What is the longest that you run during the training? Uh, either, yeah, about three weeks before you do your longest, and it's usually 20 or 21, but but not over that. And, and you think, well, oh, if you can do 21, you can do 26.2. I'll tell you, the last five, <laughs> the last five feel like 50. Because uh, you do, you know, there is that wall. Um, you know, you do to get that burst as well. But then well, there they is always, that they wall. always talk about that the runner's high. Yeah, you get the high. And so yeah. back back in my twenties, uh, I know it doesn't look like it now, but I used to run all the time. So when I graduated high school, um, I was like three hundred and twenty pounds. I was just at that place where I almost the place where you're looking off that um, porch with your beer, watching somebody run by. Yeah, I was at that place where I was like. I hated my body. I hated what I had done to myself. 
And I just started running one day. And the first day I could only make it, you know, a quarter mile. But yeah. I grew up in this really small town in Northwest Illinois. The radius around that town is, it, it's only at about three miles. Uh, or is that circumference all the way around? Anyway, so I would walk the rest of the way around that town. And about six months down the road, I could run that full three miles. Yeah. You know, and within about nine, 10, 11 months, something like that, you know, I had lost almost a hundred pounds. Wow. You know, and I just kept running. I just kept running and running and running. And that runner's high is one of the coolest things ever because when you get to that point, you're like, wow, I I can run my ass off now. And uh, you got to be careful. You know, that's a great point, John, because and when you're running a marathon, you, I, I usually hit it around 15, 16 miles, right? And I could run, you know, I'm running a seven and a half minute pace, having a conversation like we're having right now with another runner, no, not even sweating. And you got to be super careful because you're like, oh, I'm just going to start speeding up. Right. Well, the runner's high is followed by the wall. <laughs> and when the wall hits, it, that's exactly what it feels like. Then becomes mind mind over body at that point you really have to you can't think about three miles you have to think about the next hundred yards what the next water stop the next you really got to piece it otherwise your mind your body because your body's telling you stop we're done you've gone far enough you've done your duty uh and your mind has to take over at that point so and that's what you learned you know was what i found out it was the first time i was out of my comfort zone in my life which is exhilarating but when I, I remember when I crossed the finish line, I, I was like, wow, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it changed my life because what I do now and what I did after that was that uh, anything that I was presented with from a problem, even in my personal life or in, in professional life at work, I always bounce it off of, is this harder than a marathon or as hard as a marathon? And the answer is always no. <laughs> right. It's like, it's okay, stop whining and get it done you know, whatever it is from a personal <clears throat> professional. So it really changed my life in that way because it, it showed me that I could do much more than I thought I could do. And then bounce using it as a kind of a, uh, you know, way to look at yourself in the mirror, you know, and I always have my medals up at home when I walk in the door, that's the first thing I see. Right. And a lot of times I look at that and I'm like, who did that? You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, you did that. And remember yeah. that you did that. Right. And uh, so it really changed my life. And people actually came up to me, I'd say a few years after, you know, maybe in four or five marathons that said, you know, you're, you're happier. You're a happier person. People have known me, you know, all my life. And I never really thought about it. But I was like, yeah, I am kind of happier, you know? And I, I know it's like the, you know, being in shape and all that kind of stuff helps you, your, your mindset. But um, I think it was more about really no really pushing the limits that I thought, thought I could not do and actually achieving that. And then, uh, you know, it's something that you take with you the rest of your life. Well, the closest thing I got to it was, uh, I did a couple of the tough mutters mm. and we did it up here. The hardest one was up here at North star and North uh, star. You started like seven, 7,500 feet, something like that. Brutal. <clears throat> and the first mile, you're just going straight uphill. And, uh, I looked at it. I'm like, Oh my God. And uh, right when you get to the top of the hill, you're like, oh, good, we're done. Nope, you go over to the right and go up another hill. And uh, just I remember that the first 45 minutes of it is just straight uphill. 
And I had that same feeling as you did when I got done, because then at the end of it, they electrocute you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was another fun one too, because I ran through it by myself and it hit me and it went right through my nuts. <laughs> I was yeah. like, what just happened? It just dropped me to my knees. And then right. I had to figure out how to get out of all these electrodes. But uh, again, same thing. I look back on those memories because I did it with a couple of buddies. And uh, just those memories looking back on it that, oh, yeah, I did that. And uh, for you to have done you know, all those majors, I mean, it's just awesome. Are, are yeah. you planning on doing any more? Uh, no, I think you know, there, there's something called the, the Seven Continents Club which I joined. So I was thinking about that, but um, we run all seven continents, but one of them's Antarctica. So I was kind of like, uh, no, I don't think <laughs> I want to do that. So, uh, so I did that, but you know, I, I just tell people, look, it doesn't have to be a marathon, but pick something and, and, you know, something that, you know, is out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're, you're afraid of heights or something. So, you know, jump out of an airplane, you know, and then it appears just something and you'll be amazed. It will change your life. Something that you, and I try to get people to think about what that might be. could be anything. Uh, and, and it will change your life. It's, and, and, and it changed mine. Um, but again, it doesn't have to be climbing Mount Everest or anything like that. It could be something very simple um, that you've never done before. So, so yeah. what are some of the lessons that you learned from uh, becoming a marathon runner that you use in your career as a CIO? Yeah, well, the big one was what I told you. There isn't a problem that's insurmountable anymore for me. You know, I, I, it's just nothing I've run into is harder than a marathon and or the second or the third or the 12th. Uh, they're all and they're all different. Um, you, the weird thing about a marathon is like they're not the same, you know, because you, you could have an upset stomach at one of them and or you didn't train as much as you should have. I mean, there's just a variety of things. The weather is huge. I've run in beautiful weather and I've run in 35 degree weather with rain pouring into my face going up heartbreak hill in well, that's, that's a question what what's your favorite weather to run in uh favorite it was actually 2014 it was like 55 degrees and it was it had some sun but a little overcast you don't want too much sun because of the uv rays but um like in the 50s with some haze some overcast is like absolutely perfect no wind of course, unless it's at your back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's always helpful. But um, yeah, that that's. But I, I tell you, the uh, the one in 2015 was the hardest because that was the one time I was questioning because there weren't. You know, you need the fans to boost you. You know, they're like, go. They get the signs up. It makes a huge difference. I always thank them along the way. Um, I, I carry um, the American flag uh, with me, a bunch of little ones. And I hand them out to families. I look for little kids along the way. It gives me something to do. And uh, it's amazing. You hand them, they look at their parents, and they start waving them and stuff like that. So um, when you have days like that, it's amazing. But when it's pouring, you don't have the fans. And I remember going up Heartbreak Hill, which is about the 20-mile mark, uh, Boston Marathon, and, and seeing, like, sparse fans. And, and just that's the first time I questioned myself, like, what are you doing out here? <laughs> you are out of your mind. But then – you know, I fly back to California and, you know, we get these finisher jackets, right, um, that you order. So when you have one on, everybody knows you ran that marathon for that year. Uh, and I remember going back, I was in the parking lot of a grocery store in California in Huntington Beach where I was living at the time. 
2015 and uh, from across the parking lot, I saw this woman with the same jacket on. So, and she saw me and we just ran towards each other and she had, she had her daughter with her probably eight, nine years old. And it was so funny. She ran towards me, total strangers, right? We hug. And because we both know what we went through, we both train. It's a club, you know, you've, you've done similar things. So right away, you're in the same foxhole together. And uh, so we started talking about the weather and a race and I don't know, we're like old friends. I still remember the daughter like pulls on the mother's jacket and says, mom, mom, we got to go. We got to go. And then mom's like, hold on, hold on. We're talking. <laughs> so finally she says, she goes, she goes, mom, I'm going to tell dad you're talking to men strangers. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, she, she went right. She looked right down at her daughter and said, marathon runners are not strangers. Just like that. You know, I was just like, wow. <laughs> but that's the kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you take with you. And, and there's a, as a team that and if I wear my seven star jacket, you know, if I run into another person, it's very rare that I do, but, but even I run into marathoners and I say, Oh, wow, you ran all six. I'm up to three, you know, which one did you like the best? It just, it's easy to engage people in, yeah. in that kind of fraternity. Yeah. So right now you are the CEO, uh, CIO of renowned healthcare. I know about renown, but could you tell, our listeners uh, and viewers about renowned healthcare. Yeah. So no, it's awesome. John. Um, you know, I, like I said, I've been in healthcare for uh, 40 years. I used to tell people that that just makes me old, but somebody stopped me a while back and said, no, 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 you have wisdom. And I thought about it. And I said, wow, I like that a lot better wisdom, you know, and it's true because you have um, wisdom is made up of all experiences in your life. Right. And you can't have wisdom when you're 25 years old. You know, you need to be my age to have wisdom or, or I mean, you don't have to be exactly my age, but you have to be older to have wisdom because you have to have all those experiences, right? Both good and bad that you learn from. Um, but renowned health, and, and that's why I love being a CIO right now. I have no plans to retire. I'm having more fun now being a CIO, giving back to organizations, mentoring people than I did when I was my 40s where I was trying to build a career and stress and not sleeping at night and all those kinds of things. And that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but what I love about Renown Health, I've been here about 10, 10 months is, I, and I, I was back at um, University of Connecticut Health doing an interim CIO uh, gig during uh, COVID. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know Reno. I've never been to Reno. Um, didn't know Renown Health, didn't even know anything about them. But I started with the interview process and, I, I just love the people. I was just right away. I was, they were very engaging. Then I did, you know, the group interviews um, through video. And then uh, I'd like the way the team worked together, the senior leadership team, you know, when you're in, when you're being interviewed, you're also interviewing them, right? They don't, they don't really know, it, but you're seeing how they interact with each other. It's like, is this a team that I'm, I'm going to be able to add value to and join? Uh, or is this going to be, you know, a lot of infighting and things like that and politics and right. I'm past all that stuff. Uh, and then I came out to Reno and uh, like I said, when like earlier I talked about my son and myself, we're outdoor people, you know, hiking, you know, running, biking, um, you know, camping, whatever it might be fishing. Uh, and I just fell in love with the place. I just, you know, it's, one, it's, one, of the, it's one of the best places on earth for all yeah. of those things you just said. I know. And it's close and, and everything's close by. You get Tahoe. Um, and then, like I said, I lived in Huntington beach for five years when I worked for the university of California. 
that's an hour flight. You know, I've got a lot of friends there. I'm actually going there uh, tomorrow to visit some friends. Uh, and then getting back to the East Coast to, to the rest of my family is not not that difficult, connected in Denver and over. Uh, but it was really about uh, the organization. And everywhere I went, the people were so kind, so nice, so helpful. Uh, I've never seen anything like that. I'm used to kind of the New York, New Jersey, nothing against them. But, you know, <laughs> it's a stereotype, I guess. But, you know, uh, you don't see that here. It's very much a team. And we work together now that, you know, I know there's been a lot of changes uh, recently, but the resiliency of this organization is amazing. We just keep moving forward, helping each other. Um, if you don't do that here, you, you're actually an outlier. You will stick out if you're not a team player. Um, and uh, so I, I just, I fell in love with the place. And I was like, okay, well, you know, here we come. And then as soon as I got out here, started experiencing stuff for the smoke. Because um, I was here last July. <laughs> uh, gosh, that was awful. Hopefully that doesn't happen again this year. Yeah, yeah. The, so, the last the last few years have been horrible as far as the smoke. Yeah, I, I like, hope like you know, like yeah. you know, my wife and I and our child Johnny just moved up here about the same time you did, probably about ten months ago, nine months ago. And uh, before yeah. that, we were in Northern California, but the smoke the last like three years has just been ridiculous. So maybe everything's burnt up, and it won't burn this year. I know, I know. I, I yeah, I hope it calms down. We'll. We'll see, but uh, I'm really looking forward because I get here in kind of middle of July and then the smoke hits. So I really didn't experience summer here. So I'm, I'm in spring too. So I'm really uh, looking forward to that and having my son here as well and building a house. And um, I'm just super excited about the, the, the summer here. But with Renown, I, I mean, the people really care about the community, uh, the doctors all that I met there, and, and they're really good doctors. Um, you know, I, I, my primary care physicians here and, um, you know, I've had some had some foot and knee issues from the running plantar fasciitis, which is kind of the runner's disease. I'm actually working through a little bit of that right now. And uh, they just been they're just wonderful people. And the community itself is very welcoming. Um, yeah, I, I just and again, it's about when I go into an organization, can I add value? I don't want to come in and just sit in a chair and keep things running. I want to be able to make change that's that's worthwhile to not only the my my customers from an IT perspective, which are, you know, the the um, the doctors, the nurses, business people, operations, but also uh, can I make changes in the life of our patients using technology, right? And um, here's, you know, we can do that. And we are doing that and and you know I I know it can contribute to that. And that's what excites me. So in the last two years, we've had huge changes as far as COVID mm -hmm. and the pandemic. As a CIO of an organization, what has what's your biggest challenges that you're dealing with right now, um, mm -hmm. coming out of uh, hopefully coming out of uh, the pandemic and uh, moving in the direction we're moving in now as a country? Yeah. So the the biggest challenge now is the whole virtual care aspect that's that uh, you know if you think about covid you when it first started the only way you could see your doctor was through a video visit right and so right. everybody raced to get that up and running and then uh, and the government started paying for it so that, that made it that made it uh, even better and that that's been the problem with kind of telehealth is it's been kind of uh, more of a volunteer type of program in rural areas but you never really got paid so you couldn't really 
expand it, but now the government started paying. So, kind of, so with virtual care, that's kind of the digital front door we talk about. So COVID kicked that door down basically, and people love love the virtual care. And so, what's happening now is how far can we take that? You know, can we take that beyond video visits? Can we actually put a monitor on you when you're you know coming out of surgery and send you home a day early with your loved ones? but we're monitoring you 24 seven, you know, with some sort of device that's, you know, um, attached to you. And so instead of laying, high. instead of laying in a hospital bed, right. Taking up space. Right. But also not just taking up space, but people are happier at home. Exactly. Everybody I talk to is just like, Oh man, if I could just get out of this place. <laughs> that's what they yeah. always say. Oh, they're in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, you know, and so the, the challenge, though, is like, for example, when it was the big rave was in, in, uh, implementing electronic health records. Right. Um, but most everybody has that now. And there was always a roadmap for that. Here's the beginning point of how, how you do it. Here's the end point of when you're live and here's how to do it. There is no roadmap for this. We are all you can you can go to Cleveland Clinic and they're talking about the same things we're talking about at Renowned Health. Not from an IT perspective, I cannot call a CIO and say, hey, how'd you do that? Um, you know, so we're all going into this together. So it's a fascinating time. And that's, uh, that's, where, the, that's where the biggest ideas come from, right? Yeah. Is, you know, sitting down and going, okay, let, let's figure this out from scratch. Yeah. And so, you know, companies like yours, I mean, we're going to need to partner with you guys to figure this out because we can't do this on our own. All we do know is like, if we get a patient on a digital journey, uh, the longer we can keep that uh, them on a digital journey versus what I call an analog journey, which is actually face-to-face with a, a, a physician. Right. Um, as long as we keep on a digital journey, that means they're getting care from their home, from wherever they are, as opposed to actually, you know, getting in the car, driving and coming into the facility. Uh, so there's a lot of technologies, you know, better chat boxes and using artificial intelligence to help us guide the patient to where they need to go, both digitally and analog. And then of course, when they get home is to monitor them. We're doing a pilot right now with 50 patients on the, um, on the inpatient side and then 50 patients at home. Uh, they actually come in as the inpatient and they take the button home with them. And we just started a pilot on, on that. And it's fascinating. Some of the things that we're thinking about, um, you know, we haven't implemented, but it's things that, again, like I said, there's no cookbook, right? So for example, you put this button on the one we're using, it's a company called BioIntelligence. It's called a bio button. And it's a little small thing. And it does about nine different modalities, you know, most of the vital signs, but it also knows when you're standing, when you're sitting, when you're lying down, right side, left side, right? So there's a lot of patients that come in, for example, that are prone to uh, bed sores, right? And so patients like that, they need to be turned every two hours. Otherwise, that'll exacerbate the sore. Um, but the nurse has to remember that, right? Well, with the bio button, we know, so we've got nurses in a big RTOC center, and I think you might've seen that center, John, at the Remote yeah. Transfer Operations Center, the big screens, and they're monitoring this inpatient and they know whether that person's moved in two hours. So now they can alert the nurse and say, Hey, you got to move this patient. So and we haven't, you know, implemented these things, but these are the things we're talking about. The other one was, you know, uh, we're required to do vital signs, right? Three times a day. Well, that means 
two, three o'clock in the morning, and you're going to wake the patient up. Um, but if they're all green on their vital signs that we're monitoring remotely, why do we have to wake them up? We can just don't send have to. message to our electronic health record, right? And then the nurse sees it, you know, logs that she's uh, she or he has seen the the um, the vital signs, and, you know, charts that you make sure it's uh, in the electronic health record. You don't wake up the patient. You move forward. So that's a that's a really interesting things. And then of course when they get home, um, there's things you can do where uh, because you're doing 24 by seven, <clears throat> excuse me, and you can see the, you know, the red, yellow, green aspects of their um, monitoring, you can actually put a report together. And, you know, if, if the patient's okay with it, you know, send it to their loved ones on a daily basis. So, you know, there might be a potential where, you know, you have an elderly, um, your elderly mother or father is in LA and you're in Chicago and, you know, in the past you would move from Chicago to LA, right. To take care of your elderly parents. But if we're monitoring them 24 seven and sending you a daily report, maybe you're not going to move. Maybe right. You'll come visit. Um, but you know, you know that they're being taken care of because if there's an alert, there's a nurse on the other end looking at that alert. And I mean, even to the point if we had to call an ambulance, we would do that. So you know, these are these are exciting things that that uh, that we're doing. Other other organizations are doing, but again, it's there's no uh, there's no roadmap on this stuff. So, and and to me in my career, this is just so fascinating for me. And I think what you're going to see is this: when we look back five years from now or ten years from now, COVID as bad as it is as it is and, and was is going to really because of these things that we're doing now with the, uh, with virtual care, uh, is going to change healthcare and that changed the way we treat patients for the better. It's certainly lower cost, right. And it's going to be higher quality in, in the long run. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's certain things that have, that have changed medicine over time in the last, you know, 200 years, you know, first being probably anesthesia, right. Um, the last big, development was uh, and you had x-ray right it was the first time you could look inside of somebody's body right without cutting them open uh, so you had these like big events along the way the last one was lipitor right but cholesterol helped millions of people across the world live longer right right i think people are going to look at and say this is this is that big five or ten years from now i think about because my my grandmother god rest her soul just passed away last year and uh she was one of those people that always just wanted to be at home. She liked her privacy. She liked her home. She liked her chair. She liked her TV shows. She liked everything, right? Yeah. And as soon as she went into the hospital and then the nursing home, she was done. Yeah. And it was one of those things that she always told us, if you put me somewhere, I'm not coming. I'm, I'm done. You know, yeah. it's pretty much I'm not going to go there. And it was within just a few weeks. She was done. And, wow. uh, it's uh, it's, a it's a lot of people like that because a lot of people have that pride of being on their own. Even if somebody else from their um, even a, somebody else from their family or a nurse or somebody else is there to take care of them in the home, people being in the home is a big big deal. Yeah, yeah, and especially um, uh, I don't know how long <laughs> your your parents own the home, but you know. It, that generation, 30, 40, 50 years in the same house kind of thing. It's, yeah. you know, we, I mean, we're you're talking not about going to like move them. my generation, Carissa and I, 
Uh, we've been in the same house for a grand total of about three years before we buy a new house and move somewhere else. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. Right now, you know, and everybody else knows that uh, we're in the IT staffing business. I own a company called IT Avalon. Yes. And I always like to ask people about um, how they use staffing agencies because right now, um, as you know and everybody else knows, um, there's about five jobs for every one person who's available mm-hmm. in IT. True. So how do you secure the best IT talent with those kind of numbers and available talent out there? Yeah, so a, a couple of ways. We'll talk about consulting in a minute, but we just in the past year created what's called a professional employment organization called a PEO. We actually hired a kind of an outside um, HR company and see with an IT, the other thing that COVID has changed, right, is remote, you know, tele, tele, telecommuting work. So we can actually hire from all 50 states in the country. So that's what this PEO does. So instead of having to move people to Reno or hire in the Reno area, uh, we can hire from all over the country. Now, if they want to move to Reno, awesome. Um, that, that's, that, you know, there. And I do have a few people that we hired recently that are thinking about that from other states. Uh, but they can stay where they are uh, and we pay them at the prevailing wage of that state. So it could be higher or lower depending on, you know, whether they're from California or Oklahoma. Right. So uh, that's been super helpful for a lot of our technical um, uh, help because we are getting poached by other consulting companies because of course they pay a higher rate. And again, you as an analyst, for example, can stay home and make more money. So who wouldn't do that? Right. You can't, can't um, fault them for that. So that's that's one strategy. The other area we're looking at is there are repetitive types of work that just isn't that rewarding. Um, and uh, the example I would use is like some of the maintenance work with our electronic health record. Um, it's stuff that just, you know, you need to do on a daily basis. It's just not fun. And can you kind of group that and, and outsource that to, uh, you know, so you're not cutting jobs or anything like that. But you're taking away work that's not very rewarding and outsourcing it to a company like yours where you've got you have a team of people remote as well taking that work so then then my people can focus more on the projects that move an organization forward right that are exciting because they're part of you know what i just talked about the bio button they're part of uh you know the strategic plan and things like that that's what gets people juiced up not the day-to-day you know stuff that's going on. So there's, we're looking at a lot of those types of strategies to make the work more rewarding um, for the people we have here. So they, they would, they would want to stay. So those are just a couple of, couple of uh, ways to do it. Let's go back to you for a second. Early life. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we'll go back to early, early life for in a second, but on your bio, I was reading that uh, you graduated from college and you were the first one in your family lineage to do that. Yeah. Your parents had to be so proud. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I didn't realize it until I was actually in college. Nobody told me uh, until I was in college and I put a little more pressure on me, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but it was, you know, and then I thought about, you know, my grandparents and my uncles and aunts and I was like, I don't remember any of them talking about college, you know, and uh, see, I, Monongahela was also, you know, only uh, about 5,000 people and it was coal mining and steel mills. And, and my father, you know, worked for U.S. Steel 
he was in a steel mill and, uh, and, you know, my cousins were in construction and cement driver, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I also had a cousin that was in a coal mine and, you know, he always had a cold because when it was 90 degrees on top of the mine, it was 45 degrees in the mine and he'd be in there, you know, all day long. He actually, his job was painting scaffolding. Uh, so you can imagine something like that. So uh, hundreds of feet below the ground. So those are the kind of jobs that were available then. And luckily my father got transferred and he had a choice of Duluth, Minnesota, which I'm so thankful. <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't want to go to Duluth? Yeah, if you know where Duluth is. Uh, I've been there and I've done that. I, I, I was in a band that played up in the Twin Cities and we go to Duluth about once every quarter. And uh, in the wintertime, oh boy. <laughs> no, and I, I've talked to people, you know, in Duluth and they're like, there's only two seasons, nine months of winter and three months of poor skating. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and that's it. And uh, but we went to Worcester, Massachusetts, which is uh, uh, about forty miles, you know, west of Boston. And so you probably hear a little bit of an accent here. But uh, so from nine years old on, and of course in New England, it was just so much more opportunity, you know. And I was able to go to college, um, uh, and I in 1975, I actually graduated from high school, didn't put that on a sheet, but I made it through all my credits in three years. Um, so I actually went to college when I was 17, uh, my first semester. So that was kind of interesting. Um, uh, how, how did, how did you find that as, uh, being younger than everybody else there? Was that a challenge for you? Yeah, it was a challenge. Cause I was, I was an introvert at the time. Uh, luckily, though, um, I was in back then they had boys dorms and girls dorms. I think they might have had one co-ed. I'm not sure, but it was mostly boys and girls. Dorms. They bunked me with two other guys. One was a sophomore and one was a junior. And um, I, I got along with them. One was a boxer and one was the football player. So they were way bigger than me. But I, I typed there back then. You typed. You didn't have computers. I used to type all their homework papers and stuff. Um and so they liked me. And uh, so I got along, but it actually turned into a business. Although I didn't get cash, I got beer. Um, I used to type, I, it was so many pages for a six pack of beer. And because I was, I was, I was a 90 word a minute guy for some reason. Uh, and <laughs> I turned it into a little bit of a beer business because I was 17. So I'm probably telling you way too much here, wasn't it? But the, the, uh, the age changed to 18 when I was in college. So that actually, uh, from a from a partying standpoint, I was able to at least fit in and uh, go buy the beer and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, they were really interested. Just a quick quick aside on that. I remember I was in a bar once, and I had a pitcher back in the days. You had pitchers of beer, and they were sitting there. And I said, "Hey, I'll go up and get a pitcher." So you're standing in line, and for some reason, you know, I wasn't a big kid. The person in front of me would step back, and the person behind me was kind of like pushing forward. No, no, they were just trying to start something, right? Well, my boxer and my football player are sitting there and all of a sudden the guy in front of me disappears. He went right up over me and, I was like, <laughs> and I, and the football player has him up off the floor basically. And it's like, that's my friend. He's getting us a beer, you know, <laughs> and, and he put him back in line. You know, he didn't, and he just said, you know, leave him alone, put him back in line. And the guy turned around, apologizing to me and stuff. So, 
you know, even though I was 17, 18, um, you know, I had, I had big brothers. So it was really nice. It pays to be a good person and yeah. it pays to know people. Yes. Oh yeah. So all my life I've networked and, you know, my whole, you know, I always told my kids when they were growing up, you know, two words, remember these two words, be kind. Just oh yeah. Big time. Be kind. And, 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 the, you know, I've expanded it now to, cause I'm older is to, uh, be kind and, and have gratitude. And yeah, uh, that's the other piece is be, you know, just think about whenever you're having trouble, you know, it, um, don't compare yourself to other people that, you know, are in worse shape than you. It's just better to think about what are the things that you're thankful for in your life and have gratitude for those. And usually whatever issue is kind of goes away when you have a mindset like that. Well, I got uh, yeah, my, my book, True Ambition, that I wrote. There's a part in there that says, you know, we all go through these horrific things in our life and they're just yeah. the worst times ever. Yeah. And then you go down the road about a year and you can't remember all those horrible things you're going through because they're just a blip on the radar. Right. You know, so it's like uh, that that feeling of gratitude and that uh, uh, just being a happy person, being a good person and being grateful. I 100% agree. Yeah. No, and if you wake up every morning and you think about, okay, what are the things I'm grateful for? You know, like my family and grandkids and people are healthy. And, you know, I mean, it's just, just a couple of thoughts around that. It just starts your day off in the right direction. And then being kind and just, you know, smiling at people saying, you know, I, I've been trying to do this at, even at grocery stores when I go in and um, saying hi before the checkout person says hi. You know, just little things like that. It kind of shocks people sometimes. You say, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to do that first. Not are you, you talking to me? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny. So you graduated from college with a teaching degree. Yeah. How'd you get into technology? Well, back then, um, I actually went on some teaching interviews. And um, uh, one was in southern Vermont. And you can imagine rural. It was kind of a rural area. And, you know, I've gone through four years of school, worked hard, got good grades, the whole thing. And it was $750 a week was the offer. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, so what I did was um, go back to school and it was night school. Uh, it wasn't towards a degree, but at that time, everybody was hiring programmers. If you went into the newspaper, right? They didn't have anything online. So all, all mainframe all, programmers. Yeah. COBOL, basic, Fortran and all that stuff. And some of my friends were doing it and working for companies like digital and data general and IBM. And I was like, wow, I got, I, I, let me try that. And I, I went to night school and I started programming. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, uh, so the teaching stuff went, went out the window. Uh, at that point, and actually it was a, it was seven. Um, I got the number wrong. I think it was seven hundred and fifty dollars a month or something. I, I was going to ask you. I'm like seven fifty a week sounds like uh... no. That's pretty good. No, it was seven. It was under ten thousand dollars a year. Yeah, yeah. No, and, it's a, it's it's a it's <laughs> a thank thankless career, and thank God for the people who do it. Yeah, you know, but it's like. Um, just that I, I can't imagine in today's society how tough it is, you know, with everybody being, you know, a critic of everything that's going on on the right, on the left, 
everywhere in the world. Everybody knows about everything. Yeah. And these, these poor teachers who are trying to teach these kids and they're doing it. I, I probably a hybrid model yet while, while we were going through COVID, it was remote. Yeah. And I heard all these teachers going, my kids aren't learning. Like, like your kids are fine. Freaking they'll, they'll be get fine. over it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it helped me out. The teaching degree helped me a lot because uh, I was elementary ed uh, with a, a special needs uh, focus. And I can't tell you how many adults I ran into that were really children. Uh, you know, so it actually helped me out a lot in dealing with some people along the way. It just, um, but everything I focus on is, you know, everything to me is a teaching moment, right? And so that, that resonates with me throughout my career. So I think it actually helped me in some way, even though I was going into programming. And I got my first job at the um, University of Massachusetts um, Medical Center. And so that was the tie-in between technology and uh, healthcare. And then uh, that was in 1981. Uh, so it's been, you know, 40 years. And I just kind of moved up. I think I've had every IT job there is. Uh, all the way up to CIO, which actually has helped me because even though the technology has changed, the way you manage different areas or lead different areas hasn't much. So, um, so when I talk to some of the leadership here in my past in different areas, I've been in their job before, which I think really helps out a lot. Now, being a chief executive and myself uh, being an owner of a company, we're both driven. Yes. Um, there's a big drive behind pretty much every person I talk to on this podcast. Where does your drive come from? Mine is uh, where I can make a difference now um, with with people's lives. Where um, where did it where did it come from in the beginning? You know, it, it was hard because uh, it was more. I think it was more self centered in that you know I I wanted to build a career. I wanted to make money. I wanted to take care of the family. Um, you know, because it kind of more started in that direction was more money driven, probably than anything else and career driven. Um, but as I get older, that changed. See, prob the problem was back in the day, uh, technology uh, was more finance related. The, you know, the systems we were running were accounts payable and um, supply chain types of systems. You know, the, the electronic re well, the record was manuals in a folder, you know, it was paper. Uh, so you you really separated from patient care uh, a lot. It was hard to say what I do. How's that impact patient care? Now with the technologies, we can impact it in a good way and in a bad way. Uh, right. Either way, right? And um, so my whole thing switched now to um, you know to the, what I try to do and think about in organizations. You know, if if my family, any one of my family members came in here. Um, and needed, you know, attention in some way, um, you know, do I, would I want them to come to this organization or go somewhere else? And I would want them to come to this organization. And I would, the reason being is that I put technology in place, you know, certainly working with the doctors and the nurses and others that, you know, make us better than everybody else. Um, and, and you're going to have a better experience, but we're also going to take care of you. Um, that's kind of my focus now is what can I do to look at every patient as if they were a family member of mine and what kind of care that they, they, they should have and how that technology impacts that. So when I talked about virtual care earlier, you know, that's, that's what it's all about is 
how can we make that patient experience, certainly the quality, get them better, but how can we make it a really good uh, patient experience as well? Well, you're doing a good job. My, my wife, Carissa, and I both go to Renown. Um, Johnny's pediatrician's Renown. You know, everything we do, and it's just that we've, we've mentioned it sitting around the dinner table, you know, how nice of an experience it is to be involved and to be using those services. So yeah. it, it's just from, from my perspective as a client, uh, you're doing a wonderful job. So keep Oh, that's up. great to hear, John. Thank you. Yeah. Now, you and I were both born and raised in small towns. Yeah. You were in a metropolis of 5,000. I was in uh, Mount Carroll, Illinois, 1,500 people. Wow. Um, so we, we didn't have uh, – we, we had a Dairy Queen, yeah. a, a four-way stop, and a bunch of churches and bars. That's all we had. You know? we're, we're close, but, yeah. Close but, that. We had a river. <laughs> uh, ours was called the Wakarusha, which I think was also a Native American uh, word. Probably, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I really, looking back on it, have the fondest memories of growing up there. Uh, but like you, um, you know, there's not much money there. No. There's, there, there's not much opportunity that, uh, you know, that my mom worked for, I think, 40 years for a company called LK, and they make uh, water coolers. And uh, if you look around at pretty much any um, large school institution, something like that, you're going to see an LK water cooler. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she, when she uh, retired, maybe she was making 17 bucks an hour or something like that. that. That's a great wage for back there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, God bless her soul. Um, she, she's still alive by the way. Um, but, uh, she worked her way up from the assembly line to be an inspector, you know, and I worked at that place for one summer and my job that summer was to put at the end of the assembly line, a plastic bag over top of the water cooler. I did that all summer long. Yeah. And I was just begging and begging and begging to move up the line where I could like use a rivet gun <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just to do something else. But she worked all the way up through that and, uh, Working that job, I just knew I, I needed to get out of there. Yeah, you know. And uh, I, what yeah. I'd like to hear is, uh, what was your experience growing up in uh, small town uh, Pennsylvania? Yeah, see, you know, and again, you don't know any better because you haven't been to like the big cities, right? You just right. think this is it. But there's some great things about it. I mean, we lived right next door to uh, my aunt and uncle, and they had ten kids, and we had five. So we had a bat, we had a basketball team, we had a baseball team, we had, you know, and we lived right next door and, 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 uh, in the middle was a big yard that, you know, we did all the sports and football, baseball, everything. And I walked to school again, it was like the old story of, you know, uh, walking to school back in the day. I, I never got on a bus until I moved to Massachusetts because our school was like right at the top of the hill and there was a ball field there. So we all went up there to play and you knew all the neighbors and all that kind of stuff. And so, and then every Sunday was church. My father sang in a choir. We went over to my grandparents' house for we're Italian side and for a big Italian dinner and all, all my 
gangster uncles and stuff would come over, <laughs> which, which is actually a true story. Um, <laughs> I just didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what black coats and black hats were with the black Cadillacs, but saw plenty of those. Um, and uh, we had, we played outside while they hung out in the kitchen and drank and, and we all came in and ate and it was every single Sunday. So, you know, it was that kind of routine, which, you know, when I look back on it, it's a very simple life, but, like you said, you know, as you get older, it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do for a living? Drive a cement truck, be in a mine. You know, my father, similar years started, your mom started in the blast furnaces and uh, moved up to accounting. Um, so he, that's why he was able to transfer uh, uh, to, to Worcester. And his last paycheck was, he, last year before he retired, was $35,000. That's the most he's ever made in his life in one year. Um, so it's just in, you know, you just get grounded in that. So when I went to college, I actually, um, my parents gave me $15 a week uh, to live on in the 70s. So I used to go to the store and buy a ton of spaghetti, a ton of sauce. And I always have money left over for a six pack of beer, which was awesome. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And that's how I lived. And then I got a job in a, in a lumber mill. Uh, and this is in, um, Southern Vermont. And uh, I started off as a, a nailing pallets, 25 cents a pallet. You mentioned the gun, you know, you do the pallet, flip it over, do the gun, matic gun, throw it up on a pile. And it's all piecework. So I just go in and work two, three, four hours, make some money. And then I moved up to actually a Sawyer uh, where you sit in a chair and you bring the logs up and they run to a big guy at a, a six foot, I think it was a six, six foot saw. Uh, that I had to take care of. And uh, they taught me all that stuff. But again, not a life that I wanted to go into. Um, there, there were people there uh, working there who were 60 years old and didn't know how to read um, in these places. So, uh, but it was a, it was a great experience. Um, you know, it kept me grounded uh, from the standpoint of, you know, your money, your, your parents giving you all the money to spend and stuff. You know, I had to hustle and, and, and do a lot of that stuff you know, on my own, um, which was, you know, it just to me, just a great experience uh, before I moved into the corporate world. Yeah, it did. You come out of that experience with a great work ethic. Yeah. Um, and same thing in the Midwest. You know, I, I shoveled snow in the wintertime. Yeah. I bailed hay in the summertime. Yeah. You know, and I was always the big guy, so they threw me up in the hay mow. And, uh, you know, it had come off there and you, you had to get it stacked up as soon as it came off of the, um, conveyor belt. Great workout. Yeah. Oh, and I was getting paid 10 bucks an hour. You know, if you worked minimum wage back then, I think it was like three twenty-five an hour, yeah. two seventy-five, something like that. Yeah. So I'd go and work for the farmers and make 10 bucks an hour. And then they'd bring out beer at the end of the day too. And you'd also have a great meal that was home cooked back there. So it was just, it was a great experience growing up in that little town. And I, I just adore Mount Carroll and Savannah, Illinois, the two places I grew up. And I love to go back there. And I'm, I'm actually taking my son, Johnny, my three-year-old, well, he'll be four at the time, back there over Labor Day. And I can't wait to take him back there and show wow, him around. That's awesome. Show, show him off and show him around at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Awesome. You know, so <clears throat> one thing I saw from your uh, background that I absolutely was envious over was you saw Led Zeppelin. Yes. Holy shit. Yeah. See, that was Tell back, me about that experience. 
Yeah. So back, you know, I grew up in the seventies, right. And so with college and everything, and uh, it, it was amazing. I got to see, you know, Led Zeppelin. I, I saw Rolling Stones in their heyday. I saw the who I saw Leonard Skinner in 1974 when they came out with sweet home, Alabama, they weren't even the headliner it was Aerosmith uh, was the headliner. Uh, they were like the third band. Um, uh, yeah. So it was in, I didn't know, you know, Grateful Dead. Um, I just didn't know at that time, nobody did that, what that really meant, you know, because I just thought, Hey, these are great bands and this music of the day. And then, you know, 30 years later, you know, some of them are still playing, right? <laughs> 30, 40 years later, uh, some of them are still playing and, and, and the young people are listening to them still. I would have never thought that. You know, I was just, it was, the, it was the greatest music. I mean, my, myself yeah. grad, graduating high school in 1990 and being a drummer, you know, all good drummers go through the John Bonham yeah. stage. If you're, if you're going to learn how to play, yes. Yeah, you, you better pick up John Bonham and Led Zeppelin and figure out all the amazing things he was doing. And just to, as a group, I mean, it just it doesn't get any better than yeah. Led yeah, Zeppelin. It was just amazing, amazing time. And a lot of outdoor festivals. I got into, uh, you know, bluegrass and, and uh, you know, everything was camping out and three-day weekends with the various bands and the stages and, you know, at that time, I, I think I put on my start playing spoons. I actually played with uh, Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys. Uh, yeah, I got discovered at a concert when I was 19. I was in college summer and uh, I was down at the bottom of the stage and Earl and his brothers were up there playing and I had my spoons out and I was playing and they kept looking down and they couldn't hear me certainly because they, they had their, their speakers in front. But some guy came out and got me and said, Hey, Earl wants to see you behind stage. Uh, this was like 1977. And so, uh, yeah, I went behind stage, they had a big fire going, they had the RV and stuff. And they're like, it sounded like you knew what we were doing, but we couldn't hear you. So and I, I said, sure. And he said, uh, we sat around the fire. He called his sons over and, uh, he said, so what do you want us to play? We want to hear those spoons. And I said, just do it. And I'll jump in. 30 seconds later, he stopped and he goes, you're up. And <laughs> I got up on stage. Unfortunately, you know, back then we didn't have the internet or anything, you know, phones. So there's no video of it, but it was my, I got to play in front of probably about 10,000 people. He introduced me. And um, so then uh, when I got home, you know, so my father always used to say, hey, you're pretty good at those things, but, you know, you're never going to make any money. Uh, so stick to, you know, stick to college and all that stuff. I was a sophomore going into junior and the phone rang and it was, it was Earl Scruggs band, the manager or whatever. And my, I still with my father, you know, he didn't have a cell phone. So he had a big cord and he's like standing in the kitchen and he looks at me, he goes, it's for you. And uh, so I got it and he goes, Hey, we're touring. Uh, we're touring uh, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, New York, and Pennsylvania. And we'd love to have you come with us. Um, you only have to play one or two songs, something like that. Uh, and so I get to go on the road. I, I looked at my father and he goes, because I was just mowing lawns and stuff like that and uh, making a little money. And so it was so funny. Uh, I got to be, you know, saw the groupie scene at 19. I was the youngest. Um, uh, I got to play, you know, one song at the beginning, one song at the end. It was a blast. And then they gave me like 50 bucks or something. They all took a, 
I think so. I, I remember walking back, walking my father and saying, so here, you know, I gave him 50 bucks. <laughs> Proved you wrong. <laughs> yeah. And he just shook his head. But I play, I still play now. I played, I've got a YouTube out there. Uh, I still play, you know, I'll, I have no trouble going into a saloon and if a, bar, a band's playing at the break, I'll walk up and say, you know, hey, you want me to sit in with some spoons? And yeah, so I played different venues so over the years. I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I can still keep a beat. <laughs> so with uh, spoons, that's like they have spoons back to back. Yep. And they're soldered together, right? No. See, that's the key is I, I use, I can pull spoons out of your drawer in your kitchen and play them. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I'm old school. Yeah. You have to hold them between your fingers. And I used to get, I used to bleed all the time. I used to use black electrical tape cause they move around, you know, and they cut India. So I used to, but now I have calluses everywhere. So, uh, but I, yeah, I go to parties and stuff. I teach kids, kids really pick up on it quick. Um, but you know, I'll just, if there's music playing outside, I'll go into somebody's kitchen drawer and pull out a couple spoons that look good. And- All right. Well, my uh, Ed and I's next show yeah. is uh, 20th and 21st at the Silver Legacy up here oh. in Reno. Yeah. You got to bring the spoons out. Sure. And uh, we, we got to hear these things and see. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Now, let's do it. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. And I, I always end the podcast the same way, asking the same question. So this is called the True Ambition Podcast. Uh, the name of this came from, and uh, you and everybody else knows, I've been sober. I just celebrated eight years of sobriety. <clears throat> and uh, True Ambition came out of one of the books in my 12-step program. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the quote is, the true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I read that six or so years ago, it kind of changed my perspective, just like you were talking about before. The perspective that I had before was my ambition was to get the girl, get the house, get the car, mm-hmm. you know, get everything for me, me, me. My my perspective has changed today. And what I'd like to know from you is uh, you, you've done a lot of things. You've been a lot of places. Um, what is your true ambition in life, both in your career and in your personal life moving forward? Yeah. So from my, my career standpoint, it's what I've mentioned earlier. It's really giving back, leaving a legacy so that, you know, every organization I, I work for, when I leave that particular organization, that they remember me, you know, three, five years later uh, and, and not because of me personally, but because of what I've done from a leadership perspective, always leaving them a better place than when I first started. So eventually when I leave Renown, hopefully people look back and say, wow, that virtual care that we put in place has just changed the way that we treat our patients for the good. It's all about what I can, what I can get back and leave behind. And then I also mentor the younger leaders coming up. And I think that's truly important for, for us leaders to, to do that. Um, as well before we go and find our beach uh, somewhere. On, on, the, on the personal side, it's really my family. Um, you know, I, I get um, all my kids were, I'm, I'm divorced, and, but they were, I got divorced when they were young. And so, you know, we did this whole, you know, every two week visitation type things that you do. 
So I, I never really got to see them grow up as much as I would have, you know, being there every day as their dad, as opposed to visiting. And uh, that's affected me. Um, at the time, I didn't really realize it, but later on, I was like, you know, I missed a lot of time. So I, I, I spend so much time with them now, as much as I can now with the grandkids we talked about. That's my focus right now. It's, it's, it's actually not on a girl. It's not on making money. It's not any of that. It's on the family. And part of the reason why I'm doing this home and um, up near Pier Mid Lake is like, it's creating a compound back to nature that they can all come to and enjoy as they get, as, especially as the grandkids get older, but leave it to the family. Uh, so, you know, 50 years from now, you know, great grandchildren are going there and experiencing Nevada and Tahoe and skiing and all those kinds of things and being looked back and saying that, you know, if you ever watch Yellowstone, you know, I'm the, I'm the first, first generation of this particular ranch. And uh, so that's my, my real focus right now, uh, personally, as family. Well, that's awesome. This has been a great podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, marathon runner, spoon player, CIO, <laughs> <laughs> um, so many different things that we learned today, and I think a lot of people can take a lot away from uh, a lot away from what we talked about today. So I appreciate you joining us for the True Ambition Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I really, really appreciate it. Had it, it was a lot of fun. So, thanks everybody for tuning in for the True Ambition Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by It Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.